Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor, and humanitarian wit, gourmet, and international traveler, Alisa Quitney. And I'm story expert and something bad on the way, Lonnie Diane Rich. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about Sandman, Volume 5, A Game of You, Chapter 2, Lullabies of Broadway. A Game of You, Chapter 2, Lullabies of Broadway, was written by Neil Gaiman, drawn by Sean McManus, colored by Daniel Vazo, and lettered by Todd Klein. This issue was edited by Karen Berger, assisted by Elisa Quitney, cover by Dave McKean. All asleep. They're all asleep. Everybody is all asleep. Time to wake up. In A Game of You, Chapter 2, Lullabies of Broadway, Barbie wakes up after a rough night to a knock on the door. It's her neighbor, Hazel, who has a question about what to do if you think you might be pregnant. As a lesbian, this isn't something Hazel's had to think about that much, but a late night with a co-worker led to accidental sex on Hazel's part, and now her period's late. After giving Hazel advice, Barbie sits down to watch TV and falls asleep, where she's visited by the fairy Nuala, who warns her that bad things are on the way. Barbie wakes up, then drifts off again to dream of her ex, Ken, mocking her new life. Meanwhile, in his apartment, George of the Order of the Cuckoo slices open his chest and releases the birds he consumed earlier, and they go to visit the dreamers of the building. Wanda's having a nice dream of being given beautiful free dresses as the kids who bullied her when she was young express how happy they are for her now. Then a bird lands on her shoulder, and her dreams turn to a surgery she's terrified of being forced on her by weirdzos. Hazel dreams of traveling by train, but being unsure of where she's going or whether she speaks the language or if she even has her ticket. She is forced into a cellar where she finds her baby dead for 70 years. She brings it home to sleep with Foxglove's live baby, and Hazel's baby eats it alive, then comes after them. Foxglove dreams of Judy, her ex, who died in a massacre at a diner, and remembers Fox as Donna, her ex-girlfriend. Judy blames Fox for her death and asks about Hazel. In her room, Thessaly wakes up when one of George's birds lands on her. She calls it a nasty little thing, then smashes it against the wall and it burns up in her hands. She puts on her glasses and goes to George's apartment, holding a knife behind her back. Meanwhile, Barbie's dreams have finally gotten her to the land and she has to deliver the bad news of Martin Tenbone's demise to Luz, Prinidou, and Wilkinson. Luz loses hope, but Prinidou and Wilkinson insist that the princess can still help. She has the porpentine, after all. She asks where the brightly shining sea is. Of course, it's a long way off. Well, she says, then we'd better get going. All right, Elisa, so here we are talking about uh, Game of You, issue number two. Um, What do you think? What's your overall response to this one? Okay, first, a very specific response. No one listening to this will know because it will be edited how much trouble we had with the pronunciation of these names where I, you know, you say it in your head. I, I haven't listened to the Audible and I mm-hmm. thought it was Prinidou, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like Xanadu. Right. But now I don't know. We've and, said it so many times, so phrase, many different ways. <laughs> so many times. And then just the phrase lose, loses hope right. is just a tongue twister. <laughs> um but aside from mm-hmm. that, um, I, you know, lately I, I'm, I've been having a little trouble falling asleep. 
And I've been thinking how when sometimes your subconscious is not your best friend. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, you spend your day focused on tasks, maybe also, you know, working on yourself, all these things. But then you lie down and your subconscious says, let's go time traveling into <laughs> uncomfortable regions. <laughs> and and I thought how well this captures that trepidation. Mm -hmm. You know, you, we, there are other uh, issues of the Sandman where we've talked about people's dreams. But this captured some of that discomfort. Mm -hmm. And I loved how it was psychological, but on the other hand, there was also this nice aspect of world building. Mm -hmm. You know, we've we've touched upon this a little that some areas of the dreaming are more are more solid than others. Yeah. So you know the um, these areas like the the area in the dreaming where Barbie's uh, it's it's a uh, oh god what's what's the word for an island? It's it's not an island. Oh, it's the scaries. A, I'm having. It's a scary. It's a Thank scary. you. It's a SK. Yes. It's it's an S K E R R Y scary. But what's more appropriate uh, though for uh, for Sandman and dreaming than calling the island scary? <laughs> a scary. Yeah, mm -hmm. it is. It is. But but the idea that some of these geographical areas are more built up and mm -hmm. others are much more ephemeral. So the very personal dreams mm -hmm. um, are you know that that is not an area of the dreaming that's built up in solid mm -hmm. relative to uh, to Barbie's dream. So I thought that was a great bit of, of world building. And, yeah. and what about you? Oh, what did uh, you think? Okay, well, I'm just, I'm stuck on this last brilliant thing that you said. Um, this idea <laughs> that the the very personal things, the, the things that are, are, are bespoke, the dream situations that are bespoke to us and our very specific experience are not as well built because every time somebody goes to a place in the dreaming, it builds it up. Right. It must be something that just builds it up and makes it more solid. Um, so the most visited spaces are the ones that are that are built up the most. I really love that. And to the point where the land itself has become something that is completely built up. I also love this idea, too, of the dreaming as sort of a rotation of play sets. Right. You know, it's, it's all the stage of the dreaming. Right. But the sets will change based on whatever it is that that particular person needs from their dreams and then here we have these birds coming in and taking dreams that some of them were not dark to begin with but got real dark once the birds landed on their shoulders so I thought that was really interesting but overall I have to say this is a nice issue I really feel like a story is moving forward we've got Barbie back into her dreams into the land um, and this wonderful note of Thessaly being ready to fight back against George and the Order of the Cuckoo um, I really kind of love the way all of this it, it's reminiscent of the the dream space that was happening in uh, in Doll's house right except we don't have you know a vortex breaking down the walls between the dreams so that's not the, the the threat but that these birds go out you know and then and George's you know chest being a bird cage you know I love that and they all go flying out to cause all sort of of havoc and the purpose of that and all of that like I think a lot of those questions are naturally unanswered at this early stage of the story and you know some of them might not ever get answered which is part of the fun too um but I like I feel like 
we're in a solid space. Like I feel like I'm being led through a very deliberate story by someone who knows exactly where we're going. And I really kind of love that. So yeah, I'm, I'm in, you know, I'm enjoying it. I'm glad, you know, the other thing we're, we're about to talk a bit about the cover art and Dave McKean. And when uh, this first came out, I remember thinking that Thessaly in looks reminded me a bit of uh, Dave's partner, Claire. So Claire is this lovely, um, well, she's not as, as uh, librarian-ish. She's, she's sort of more of a, a kind of earthy, hippie mm-hmm. earth goddess <laughs> chick. But she's got, she, she still has this wonderful long brown hair and this face that's just so innocent looking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and she has um, actually a deliciously naughty sense of humor. <laughs> So I remember initially thinking that Thessaly had, in appearance, a little bit of, of Claire McKean. Oh, that's of so Claire nice. Of Claire Swate, actually. <laughs> that's really, it's neat to kind of get that little, like, background um, background stuff in there. And it's one of the many wonderful things that you bring to this podcast. Um, but the cover itself, uh, the cover is, again, broken into two jagged color spaces. That um, We have a cool blue title. Um, this says a game of you at the top and then below in warm reds and oranges, we have this collaged vision of George with his chest open rib cage showing birds flying out, um, behind him, we see a shadow or his shadow. The shadow does feel sort of like it's got its own personality and intent, right? Uh, on the wall, it is facing away from him on one side. And I find that really interesting. Um, and then we've got a bunch of framed pictures on the wall to the other side. It is super creepy and evocative and wonderful. And I love Dave McKean's um, work on this. It is it is not it is always pulled from the story, but it always seems to pull rather the, than the literal movements of the story, like the feel of the story and the subtext of the story, which I absolutely love about that work. Yeah. And I, I think that if there are people, you know, like myself, who aren't as comfortable with contemporary art mm-hmm. as they are with more traditional looking art. So, you know, there are many of us who can see a beautiful and and fairly realistic rendering of a person or a landscape and relate to it. But Dave is a great introduction to more conceptual kinds of art because here you can see what the relationship is to the themes and the mood and the vibe of the piece without having it be so literal Mm -hmm. with with seeing it transformed through this other way of seeing. Yeah, it just provides a different perspective, especially once you've read the issue. You go back and you look at, you know, Dave McKean's cover is great. It's the first thing you see, but you really should follow up every issue with looking back at the cover and then seeing what you didn't notice before because you didn't realize that it was narratively significant, you know, and then these little things will pull in and it gives you kind of this um, sort of a rounding out of an understanding of what that that particular story was about. And it, it's making me think how a lot of writers, Jenny Cruzy was the first writer I knew who did it, use collage as a way into yes. a story. Mm-hmm. And I had this problem that I was just so absurdly literal. So I would, I remember at that time I had magazines and I tried doing it and it just looked like some serial killer had gotten a hold of some models and I don't know what I'd done with them. It was very bad. 
But um, one of my goals right now is to learn more about image transfer mm -hmm. and to be able to do more collage so I can start from a Dave McKean place and find my story in there. Oh, yeah. Just as, you know, we're talking about doing the opposite. Yeah. No, uh, using collage as a way into a story is this incredibly valuable thing that Jenny taught me how to do. And I resisted it every single time. Like, I was always like, ugh, I don't want to do this because it's not my thing. Like, I'm not a visual, like, storyteller. Like, I really struggle to get that access to that. Which is why that is the most important thing for me to do. That is the most important, uh, you know, exercise oh. for me to do as a writer. Um, and the thing about collage is that you can take elements from, you know, you, like the classic, you cut out, you know, images from magazines, or you take stuff off the internet and then print it out and then stick it on a physical collage, or you can do it digitally in like Photoshop or whatever. There's a million ways to collage. You can make a Pinterest board if that's your thing. But the thing that it, it does so wonderfully is that it really does connect you as a writer to the visual space of the story but also it ends up like bringing out so much like in the discovery phase so much from the story that you hadn't anticipated but because you ran across something random in your search for other things those elements will come in and they'll mean something you know um mm -hmm. and dave's ability to take collage and take these elements and give us things like a shadow on the wall right but it's a shadow on the wall that looks to me like it has its own sentience you know it has its own agency it has its own objective mm -hmm. right which could be different from what George's objective is or it could be the paranoid part of George that is constantly looking over his own shoulder making sure that stuff isn't coming for him like who knows I may have a better theory for that as we move on in the story um, but that artwork and the ability and power of that artwork to not just show us setting and like visual elements, but to really use those visual elements to give us a sense of the the feel of the story. You know, stories are always about how it feels, not what it is, right? Um, and so the way that McKean's art does that so beautifully for these issues while not drawing on the literal art style of the interior art, while doing something different, I think is just a level of genius that I, you know, I just really want like an entire art gallery that is nothing but like Dave McKean covers and, you know, little explanations and behind the scenes and all that kind of stuff, which from the the Dave McKean book that I got, because I, I, I really want to see the covers not on the Kindle that I use to read these. Um, it's so incredibly beautiful and evocative and interesting. And the more you look at it, the more you find. Um, and I think that that honestly is probably about the most you could possibly ask from a cover artist, you know, to get somebody like Dave McKean is an incredible blessing. I'm sure what you felt when you were editing. Yes. Yeah. And I, you know, you, you've also got, um, you picked up on this theme of shadow selves, mm -hmm. which I think you're definitely going to see more of in you know, in the issues. Yeah. Um, now, I have something to talk about that is, uh, I always space out on how to say Josh's name. Un Unruh. 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 Joshua Unruh. 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 yes. Mm -hmm. So I have an Unruh kind of moment here that I want to <gasps> talk about, which is Weirdo Wanda. Yes, I want to hear all about that. Okay, so the Weirdzos are a take on Bizarros. So Bizarros were from old Superman and action comics, 
And in the twisted logic of the bizarro world, everything is opposite. Mm -hmm. But it's it's kind of delivered with this ruthless, naive enthusiasm. And I I love that Neil was such a reader of, of these old comics that he picked up on that and wanted to incorporate it into the world building. So you've got, you know, obviously stuff that's deeply psychological. And then you've also got these, you know, treasure troves of old comic stuff. However, however, the Sandman people said, Neil, not to use the Weirdo and Superman. And so oh, the it got changed and to Superman. Hyperman. Yeah, sorry, not to use the, the Bizarro and Superman, mm-hmm. so it became Weirdo and Hyperman. <laughs> uh, Prinidu. Uh, <laughs> clearly, I just, sorry. Uh, the, so anyway, in that dream sequence with Wanda, um, Samuel Delaney, who goes by Chip, so mm-hmm. Chip Delaney took it as meaning that Wanda was perhaps ambivalent about her identity. But um, Neil has said later in uh, the annotated Sandman or in the Sandman Companion mm-hmm. with High Bender, I, I can't remember which, uh, that, you know, he, he meant it to be based on this friend of a friend. Um, and it was an ambivalence about the surgery, mm-hmm. about vaginoplasty, uh, as opposed to, you know, a, a conflict about the know, actual the, identity. The, the, That's absolutely the actual how I read identity. It. That's I, I read it as as a um you know a fear of the surgery itself, and having that surgery forced upon her, you know when that needs to be her yes. choice. Um. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, for what it's worth, that's how I took it. I didn't take it as I don't take Wanda as being ambivalent about her identity at all. It, I I don't think. And again, you know the so the classic close reading. Mm-hmm. Um, which a lot of us learned in school, yes. uh, you know, in, in high school or in college, has to do with only viewing the text and not talking at all about authorial intention. Um, and that all, you know, all our interpretations that are textually based are valid. But in this case, I do think, you know, I, I, I am not a religious close reader, mm-hmm. Uh and so I, I think it is useful to know. But I think that it is, you know, talking to people, I've gotten the sense that this whole question of sexual identity and and uh, surgery has become, you know, deeply divisive mm-hmm. and political. And I like that this just for me, this individual character having, you know, her own fears which, which again, I, I never took it as being rooted in ambivalence mm-hmm. about who she was to herself. But, you know, I even think ambivalence has got to be okay, too. I, I have, I mean, the weird thing is, I mean, I, I, I've always felt myself to be female. And yet, I've had some ambivalence mm-hmm. about it over the mm-hmm. years. Maybe we, maybe we even demonize ambivalence. I don't oh, know. we absolutely do. I think that we are living through a time period that is extremely unstable. And one of the things that people want to go back to and actually have this almost exact discussion coming later. So I'll save a lot of that for, for later on as we discuss something else. Um, but I think that people are very much attracted to a simplistic view of the world in which, um, you know, things are black or white. They're in this binary. We're really, really reaching toward the binary. And I'm not talking about like gender binary. I'm talking about binary and everything like good and bad and, you know, all of that kind of stuff that um, that one when something is one thing, it is not allowed to be any other thing, you know, and someone who is, um, 
going through the trans experience because I think, and this is from my perspective outside of that experience. So please, I will take all corrections, Lonnie at LonnieDyingRich.com. Um, but I think that when, when somebody who is, you know, visibly trans has any ambivalence about that experience, uh, that it can feel like it's a statement about, you know, whether trans people are real or whether they are women or whether they are men or whether they're non-binary or whatever. Um, because there is such a, a tendency in culturally for the attack to come in to be like, oh, you're not really feeling that and questioning all of that. So that the space for an individual character or person to question all of those things and to have moments of, of uncertainty feels like that's not available. But that uncertainty is such an incredibly human experience and taking that away from anybody, I think, is a tragedy. So um, I would say that I think that because of the ways in which so much in our, I mean, you know, in our site, like you're liberal like you know i'm very liberal and progressive in my politics everybody i will pause for your shocked expressions and gasps right <laughs> um but if there is anything in which like i don't like agree a hundred percent with any particular like you know side of the um of the, of the usually I'm, I'm, if i disagree with like the democrats it's because i'm further left usually but i mean the point is like uh, you know, like you can't disagree with the side that you have been identified and associated with and you can't think critically and all of that kind of stuff. So in a world in which we need desperately to be thinking more critically, that critical thinking, the reaction to that critical thinking, the reaction to even questioning um, you know, the side with which you are associated um, becomes something that I think makes us feel further destabilized. All of this philosophy that I'm spouting right now off the top of my head, I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. So I just would like that to be like, you know, a disclaimer as I say this. This is all kind of theoretically what I've been thinking about lately. Um, and I think that creating space here where Wanda is allowed to be a woman, you know, in that space and also have some ambivalence about everything that is expected of a trans woman to do with her body, which by the way, anything that any woman or any person does with their body is their damn business. Just saying that. Um, but I, I, you know, so I feel like some of that response can be that, that feeling. Um, but I like that we have that space for that fear and that ambivalence. I mean, good God, if you were doing anything with your body that was going to change it, you have to go through a process. There has to be space for a process for you to really think about it and really know that's what I mean, fuck's sake, I struggle to get a tattoo, you know, I mean, I want a tattoo. I love tattoos. But every time I think about it, that commitment oh, is a bit oh. much. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, wait. I have to. So this is, I just found out there's this thing called ephemeral tattoos. No, They're yes. Real we tattoos. talked about that, I think, a couple of times ago when yes. I was talking about how I'm, I'm ambivalent about the tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> so I started to think about, oh, maybe I would do a tattoo with completely biodegradable yeah. ink that would, you know, just fade away. Um, I like that because... God only knows nothing is permanent, mm -hmm. you know, in, in this life, including, you know, the placement of one's breasts. Yes. Um, <laughs> so anyway. I love um, that. Speaking of things that change the placement of one's yes. breasts. Um, <laughs> you like my segue? That was brilliant. Um, yes. Mm -hmm. th thank you. I, I want to uh, talk about Hazel's pregnancy mm -hmm. and her and, and the dream yeah. about the pregnancy. So um, I remember 
I, I, I was, you know, brushing up on my reading about the mm-hmm. issue. So Chip Delaney also had a question about what, about um, Hazel's level of ignorance about her own biology. And his feeling was someone living in a Lower East Side, you know, tenement would be more savvy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember at the time, so when this came out, I was, what, uh, 21 mm-hmm. or 22. And I also thought, oh, would she really not know that much about pregnancy. Interestingly enough, this was based on a real uh, person mm-hmm. who was uh, a lesbian who was living in metropolitan London and who asked Neil <laughs> these very questions about pregnancy. Yeah. So I think, you know, it is so often the case that the things that we might find least plausible in fiction are, are things that are actually based on reality. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing that I keep telling everybody is that fiction is not answerable to reality, right? So you cannot say, oh, but that really happened and make it suddenly believable because yeah. unbelievable things happen every freaking day. Um, but you also can't say, oh, that's not believable in the fiction so it doesn't you know what I'm saying like you you have to understand yeah. that fiction is not answerable to reality it is it is answerable to um to what it means it's answerable to meaning right and so I think that like yes. I also was like you know just because Hazel's a lesbian doesn't mean that she didn't take basic you know like uh, sex education although it's possible depending on where she grew up that she might not have gotten that like that's definitely possible but um and yeah. it didn't feel the need to you know interrogate it further because she she is a lesbian sure like it's something that you think doesn't apply to you because you're not going to have to deal with that and then a situation comes up and these things happen um so i think that like yeah i was a little bit like well you know that doesn't really ring true to me but at the same time i was like let's make some space for this is the situation with uh with hazel and and barbie having this conversation um i'm still not exactly sure what narratively that conversation was doing aside from establishing that hazel was fearing that she was pregnant so when she goes into this dream um but either way i'm you know i'm leaving it open that it has a narrative significance that will come in later um and if it doesn't oh well you know i mean it was still like an interesting conversation for for barbie and hazel but i think i side kind of uh with with chip like fiction is not answerable to reality just because it really happened that way doesn't necessarily mean that it fits in the story but you know and we're not done with the story yet so who knows and i think if we had more context Mm -hmm about Hazel and how she was raised and what her life experience was. I have to say, the older I get, the more I realize that we all have these weird pockets of ignorance that probably should have been, you know, handled when we were in middle school or, 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 or high school. And, you know, just your life takes you in certain directions. I mean, I remember being in my 20s and I'd learned to drive Mm -hmm. But because I'd grown up on the Upper West Side, I'd never pumped gas. And I was just confused and intimidated Mm -hmm. by trying to figure out where I pulled up the car, where the gas. It's just you don't think of it. If you've grown up in driving culture, it just seems natural. But I needed an explicit lesson (laughs) in how to fill my gas Mm -hmm. tank. 
which, when you think about it, is a bit like pregnancy. A lot like pregnancy. Pregnancy is one of those things that happens to you and then you're just like, okay, guess we're doing this now, you know? Um, even when you're trying to get pregnant, like there's a difference between the the trying to get pregnant part and then like when it happens and you're like, oh, wait, we can put on the brakes now. Especially like my personal experience was, was okay, now I have to give birth because Prior to that, I was just thinking about getting pregnant and then having and then having a baby that I could, you know, dress up and do all the fun stuff with and raise and all that. Um, but then when you know you're actually going to go through it, that's when you're like, OK, wait a minute. How does this work? And what is this going to have? What's going to happen here? You know, and yeah, you know, I mean, the Internet was not available the way that it is now. Um, so you're not able to get information like that. And you have to go to your friends and hope that they are uh, knowledgeable. Um, all of that said, like what it comes down to for me always is how is this serving the narrative? Like, you know, I will absolutely make space for Hazel having been homeschooled by very religious parents and then gone into a world where she was separated from all of that and just never got the education that she needed to have because she was lesbian. So I'm not going to have to worry about this. I'm not going to use my brain space for it. You know, um, I can definitely see that. But but where that what that conversation did narratively, I don't know yet. But, you know, I'm definitely open to it. And I, I really also want to point this, this. I did forgot to put this in my notes, but I loved Barbie's casual mention of an yeah. abortion, um, which was one of the things that I have noticed. And I think it's just begun to change a little mm -hmm. is that even back in the times when, you know, many, many years when Roe v. Wade was the law of mm -hmm. the land, no one in a book, a TV show or a movie could get pregnant and decide to have an abortion. If they did decide, in the end, they would change their mind or have a miscarriage. Or be the, the racked idea with regret could... and guilt. Yeah, that was the only narrative we were allowed around abortion. Mm -hmm. Or abortion is okay, but not for me. So you didn't really have any role models of someone taking a moment, thinking it over and deciding this isn't right for mm -hmm. me right now. Yeah. And I think that the, you know, it's, in, 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 in big ways and in little ways, when we don't see people like us reflected in fiction, yep. it, it impacts, especially when we're younger, how we make our choices. Absolutely, it does. And which is why representation is so very important in like every aspect, you know, from the choices that we make to the identities that we hold. Um, and not just having... Um, having representation, but like that, that people who've had those experiences being willing to talk about them, the women who came out and said, I had my abortion, I don't regret it. This is what happened. That sharing of those stories, those personal stories um, is so incredibly powerful. And as the media in general, deeply, deeply failed us in that regard uh, during the entire time that Roe was available, the same way that the politicians failed us by not codifying it into law. That's a whole other discussion um that is but the but the thing is yeah i do really love that it is a non-judgmental discussion of that as an option um and it's just like kind of laid out there i think that that is a wonderful um it, re bit of representation to have available you know to, to readers of this uh comic yeah and it shows us in a way that barbie is not exactly who she appears mm -hmm. even at the beginning of this story right. and um and even in her you know letterman-esque vintage letterman-esque dream mm -hmm. of uh ken just humiliating <laughs> her yeah. calling her boring oh, how dare he how dare he ken doesn't even have genitals anyway so 
<laughs> let's talk a little bit about Thessaly. So Thessaly is really interesting to me. She's a character I've loved, but not admired. And I mean, I think it is interesting. There's a lot, uh, I, I think, of talk on Twitter that I see about her being a turf. Mm-hmm. And we'll look into that yeah. later. You know, I don't want to do any spoilers. But I still think that there is an interesting element. I, I think John Constantine in the comics never strikes people as someone to be admired. Right. Mm-hmm. He is he is a a ruthless and at very best morally gray character. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we extend that same understanding to female characters. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, they're meant to be heroines or villainesses and we don't necessarily look to them in that gray area. So I'll, I'll have more to say about Thessaly in, in Lucien's library. And I guess we will we will certainly be talking more about her as the series goes on. But I think, to me, it is a misreading to only look to Thessaly to be a good or an evil character. Absolutely. And that is definitely something I've got, like I said, lots of notes on that particular binary in fiction um, for when we have that discussion in Lucian's library. Um, right now, it's interesting because I don't have any other context about Thessaly. Um, I have not read the whole thing. I have kind of kept out of the discourse about it. I really want to come into this, you know, as clear as I can. Um, and right now, like, I like Thessaly. I like the fact that she's awake. I like the fact that she smashes the bird. It's a bit violent, you know, but okay. If the if the bird is doing evil, then fair enough. Um, I I'm, I'm interested. Like right now, I'm very interested in what I don't know about Thessaly. Um, but the fact that she is not apparently susceptible to this manipulation the way that the others in the house are, um, I find really interesting. And that was kind of like one of the things that I was thinking about is like here we have this house of dreams and we have all of these things happening. We have Hazel's, you know, baby eating foxclove's baby which i thought was really interesting one of the things that i that was mm -hmm. oh sorry i was just gonna say i forgot to mention that was actually based on a real dream of neil's i think that may be one of the few sandman dreams that really is based on a nightmare that he had i love that well i mean the thing is one of the things that uh, a concept that i ran across some years ago and i've always kind of been really really interested in is this idea that every relationship becomes a third entity that like you are you and they are them and your relationship together is a third thing, you know? Um, so I really actually kind of enjoyed the two babies as that there's Hazel's baby, which is the, the, her part of her vision of that, that relationship baby that they are together. And Foxgloves is very healthy. Hazel's got this secret. So this baby is dead and zombified and now eating everything and ruining ruining everything. I found that to be like kind of really interesting on on that sort of subtextual, you know, level um, and really enjoyed that. I mean, it was a disturbing dream, um, but it was it was I, I liked the metaphor of it. I don't know if that was what was intended. But again, that's just my reading of it. Um, and Foxglove receiving a visit from Judy. We find out that Foxglove was formerly Donna um, and had reinvented herself and come out here. And then here is the dead Judy coming out saying that her death is Foxglove's fault. Um, I thought that was really interesting. Also super dark. Also bird, you 
you know, um, influenced, I believe. Um, but it was neat to kind of see that connection. Like we had Rose connected to Judy. Now we have Foxglove connected to Judy. And the world building is all kind of interconnected. And we see these these little, you know, characters waving at each other as they go by. Um, I like what that does to like the stitching of the fabric of the universe that these stories are being told within, that there's there's all of that connection. There's all like in the early parts of this um of this podcast, I remember talking about like Neil using every part of the pig that like he would go into all the DC lore and the DC universe and pull in the, the you know, the old Sandmen and like, you know, all these characters and kind of like feed out the Martian, you know, and kind of feed them into this universe. And it, and it strengthens the, the feeling of the whole universe. Like if you lean against the walls in this universe, they will be solid, you know? Um, and I really, really like that. And I thought that that was interesting. What did you think about this revelation that, that Foxglove was former you know um judy's girlfriend from 24 hours i i think that all of that as you say it it makes you feel that this is a world and i i don't know it's it's it doesn't feel like such a close connection that it's all you know too tight and too Mm -hmm. small a world but it feels like we are getting to snake along all these strands of the web and pick up these other connections because i mean one thing we know about judy's relationship with foxglove who was once donna is that um she was abusive to her she was she was physically you know violent with her and and it, it also gives this lovely perspective on how we are different people in different relationships. So with Judy and Donna, there was clearly this passionate relationship in which Donna was the weaker. She's renamed herself. She's reinvented herself. And if you look at the dynamic with Hazel, you can see it's a very different yes. romantic mm-hmm. dynamic. My mother used to say every relationship is a reaction and sometimes an <laughs> overreaction to the relationship that went before. Mm-hmm. And especially in this storyline, which is so much about the reinvention of self. I mean, we have so many characters here going through reinventions. We have Foxglove, who's renamed herself. We have Barbie, who is, you know, going through her own identity crisis. Um, obviously, Wanda has reinvented herself so that she is more in keeping with her true internal selfhood and not the identity that was assigned to her. Um, and um, and then, of course, we have Thessaly. <laughs> I, there's so little that I can say about Thessaly. I have all these things for our next episode uh, about her provenance, yeah. shall I say, but... Um, I just don't want to get ahead. Well, that's okay. We don't have to get ahead. But let's talk a little bit about Barbie, right? Because this is, you know, ostensibly Barbie's story. But I feel like we're getting a similar kind of situation that we had with Rose and Doll's House, especially in the beginning, is that all the other stuff going on is so interesting. And then we have Barbie, who is supposed to be kind of like the the protagonist of the piece, right? And we're really not even saying that much about her. Um, but here we have her, you know, um, up in the morning, she's, she's counseling Hazel, you know, but of course, Hazel's situation 
as someone who, you know, was had sex with somebody that she was deeply seemed to be ambivalent about um, and now is wrestling with this, you know, potential pregnancy, that there's a lot more narrative weight on what's going on with um, with Hazel than there is necessarily with Barbie. But then Barbie, you know, falls asleep. She has her own dream. And then she finally finds her way to the land. Right. And at the end of this issue, that's what we're dealing with. Like Barbie's coming in. She's the princess. She's remembering everybody. She's like, let's get this shit on the road. And she is ready to go and, and do what needs to be done and go on her own hero's journey, you know, um, which I think is really fascinating and coming in and bringing hope to these, um, you know, to these characters, uh, Prinidou, uh, Luz and um, Wilkinson, right? Yeah. Um, so they're all depressed and like all hope is lost and everything sucks and it's all stupid poops you know and then she comes in and she's like let's get this show on the road we are not giving up we are doing this thing which I really really love one of the things that I also really kind of love about Barbie and I don't know if this is deliberate but it feels like it like I used to have a like a um, illustrated Alice in Wonderland uh, when I was a kid and looking at Barbie um, especially when she ends up in the land and when she's in transition from her dream in into the land. She feels like Alice in Wonderland. She looks like Alice in Wonderland. She's dressed very similarly. Um, and it's just like, it's almost a similar, like, you know, illustration style. And I don't know if this is something that we should have put in uh, Lucian's library, because it's just something that occurred to me now as we were talking about it. Um, I'm wondering if, if that was deliberate. I just remember, I, this is one of those rare situations where I actually remember the script a description of Barbie in that yeah. first, uh, you know, princessy gown. And I remember that it was a deliberate, I hope I remember, <laughs> Neil, if I'm wrong, you'll oh, let he me will. know. I love the text my, that we get from Neil uh, after every episode, will. right? My, my memory is that there was a, a deliberate choice not to make her gown a historical gown. Ah, you mm -hmm. know, very often, you know, There'll be some comment about this is a Victorian gown or this is a Georgian mm -hmm. gown or a Regency gown or whatever. This was very deliberately a kind of child's fantasy of a princess gown. I love it. And so it wasn't meant to be historical. Um, I don't know about the Alice in Wonderland. I, I actually was having this, I don't know if this is related or not, but I was thinking about how much this is a breakup story. Uh -huh. And, you know, when, um, let me think. So when I was first, uh, when I was first involved as assistant editor on this, I was engaged mm -hmm. and then married. So this was right around the beginning of my marriage. And um, in recent years, I have amicably mm -hmm. separated. And I've been thinking about how this is very much a breakup story of Barbie's because, you know, she has misplaced key elements of herself yeah. during the time <gasps> of her that. marriage. Mm -hmm. And so she is also, it's not just about her having to reinvent herself. It's about her having lost touch with her, her truest self mm -hmm. in a way, you know, here is Wanda who is in touch with her truest self. And Barbie is searching yeah. for this, this piece of herself that she has lost. I love that. I love that read because that is true. And like when you think about the 
relationship being a third entity, you know, and then here we have from Hazel's dream, that third entity eating everything, right? And then Barbie's experience is sort of reflecting that a bit in her trying, her coming to this land to fulfill this quest and in that process, finding herself. You know, I love that. That is what makes her more intrinsically interesting to me than Rose. Rose is Mm -hmm. very young and just... I, I didn't have that same sense of, you know, I think she wasn't fully formed in the way some of us are not you know, <laughs> right. at earlier yes. stages. Mm-hmm. Whereas Barbie had a richer sense of self. And, you know, as as happens to so many people, she, you know, parts of her atrophied yeah. or were, were cut off from the main source. Right. And it's funny because her true self was... Um, I, I'm trying to look for the right language here. Her truest self emerges and emerged in this scary, which is a cutoff part of the dreaming. Oh my god! So this I is a part that. of the Sandman and the part of the dreaming that's sort of been separated from the rest of the of the kingdom. What a brilliant read! I love working with you. All right, well, that's a good time for us to break oh, into. <laughs> We're going to take that moment to break off, and uh, we'll be back in a minute with Lucian's library. All right, so here we are in Lucien's library. We look behind the scenes. There may be spoilers in Lucien's library. We try to save them for this section if we have them. So just be warned if you have not read everything. Um, you may want to skip ahead or save this for later. Um, all right, so Elisa, I think that there is much more discussion to be had around Thessaly, who does seem to be like a, a complex uh, sort of element in this story. So, so what can you tell me? Okay. So the interesting thing uh, about this revelation Mm -hmm. that's not a revelation about Thessaly is that I just was on Facebook and uh, tuned into a discussion in which my name was mentioned by uh, Peter Hogan, Mm -hmm. the author of Resident Alien. And so what Peter was saying was that uh, this is slightly uh, unrelated, but he had worked on... um, I think it was a mini series called Marquee Moon. Mm-hmm. And it was, he said, um, Elisa asked me to do a bit on werewolves. Neil asked me to do something punk. I combined them. It was Marquee Moon. And then it just never came to be. And I thought, oh, crap, I can't remember why, you know, what was my involvement with that? And it turns out that this got. Uh, it, it's one of the things that I couldn't see to its fruition because I, I then left. That was when I, I went freelance. Mm-hmm. Um, but it reminded me about how many times I had been invited to and then proceeded to pitch for monthly series. And uh, I've never had a, a monthly <laughs> series. So I will tell you that one of those pitches was around 2010, I think, maybe, or 2011. And it was an ongoing Thessaly series. So not only was I roundly refused, but I had gotten Neil's help Mm -hmm. in crafting this. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Neil and I sat down. He talked to me in depth about how he saw Thessaly's character. We we hashed over some storylines. I did, oh my God, I did a whole, you know, major storylines for a year with standalone shorts in case a writer, an artist needed to, Mm -hmm. you know, catch his or her breath and someone else would do a fill-in and then a rough idea for the second year. And it just, it never came to be. 
So I, uh, it's there. You go. So I, I will later on, uh, if if uh, I'll, I'll, I'll maybe drop in little bits of the Thessaly series that never. I was. love that. I love that idea. So, what made you want to write about Thessaly? I just saw her as such a fascinating and John Constantine like mm-hmm. character. I mean, the joy of writing. <sighs> Someone who is, you know, somewhere in that gray area between mm-hmm. anti-hero and and has moments where you uh, approve and like of what like what they're doing, and other moments where you know you you just have a guilty delight in their competence, even as they're being, oh. you know, a bitch or a bastard. Yeah, I mean, look at you know, I was just watching uh, House last night with my husband, who has this. There's a couple of episodes that he was like, "Oh my god, you got to see this," you know. And um, and it's so fascinating how House is um, incredibly complex character who has uh, who is mostly, you know, damaged goods, who is mostly a bad guy who occasionally does good things in similar to the way that a broken clock is right twice a day, you know, Um, and I I find that really interesting and allowing these characters to be um, to be in those shades of gray, I think is um, is one of the things we've had like again like I was talking about earlier is this you know we I think as a culture are really deeply wanting to be able to simplify not just fictional characters but each other into these are good people and these are bad people when we are all shades of gray people um, because that is just how people are made you know um, and I know that the conversation has come up about Thessaly being a turf I haven't gotten to that part of the story yet um, but one of the things um, that we should define turf oh, right I just realized we should define trans exclusionary radical feminists so it is it, People who are transphobes, essentially, um, but especially this specific brand of transphobe comes from women who would maybe otherwise be a feminist, right? Except that they will be a feminist up to the point where the women that they are defending are um, are uh, trans, um, and it's similar to the white feminism, where you know we will be super feminist until there are women of color involved, and then we will you know beat them down, and it's something that uh, there's a lot of internal work to be done for feminists all along that spectrum. Um, But when it comes down to it, the idea of Thessaly being a turf as some kind of criticism of the story itself, I feel is where we're going wrong. Now, again, I haven't read it, but I don't think that based on what I've read so far in this series, that that the text itself is rubber stamping any of that. They're just saying this is who she is. And there are people like this in the world, JK Rowling. So we need to learn how to deal with that. And a lot of the ways we learn how to deal with things and think about things and ask these questions is through our fiction. So what can happen, though, is that people will take one panel out of context from the whole thing and be like, Neil Gaiman is pushing turf ideology or whatever it was that people said on Twitter. I didn't really I took a glance at it and was like, this is ridiculous. But um, I think that the ability to look at that and talk about it and see that behavior as part of a whole that is that character. Um, and as long as the text isn't rubber stamping and saying that's okay, and sim- similar to how we were talking about how abortion was treated by text 
as something that we like to have on the books, but you, you know, our characters won't have one because, you know, and that is a, an innate judgment of having an abortion in itself by not allowing our quote unquote heroic characters to ever have one and not be riddled with regret and angst. Oh, absolutely. Okay. So I, I'm having like so many thoughts. Let me see if I can say them without tangling myself into a skine. <laughs> but um, okay. When we polarize things utterly, mm-hmm. you know, you are either for for this or against this. You also make it impossible to talk with any nuance yeah, about absolutely. anything. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking, this is slightly unrelated, but I was thinking about the term bitch. Yeah. Because I have a little bitch. <laughs> I have I have a little female mm-hmm. puppy. Well, she's now between tweenager and teenager. Yeah. She's about eight and a half, nine mm-hmm. months. And I got to take her to a, a group of um, all her siblings and some other Icelandics from other Icelandic. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's an Icelandic sheepdog. Yeah. She, she looks like a cross between fox and Farrah Fawcett mm-hmm. in her prime. Mm-hmm. She's just beautiful. They're all beautiful. But what was interesting is a lot of them were female. And there were all these fights that kept breaking out. Uh, all, a lot of these these puppies had not yet been mm-hmm. uh, spayed. Mm-hmm. And so they were having their hormones. And my friend who has um, Gilda's my puppy, her older sister, mm-hmm. just shook her head and said, God, this never happened when we had male Icelandics. <laughs> They're just fighting. I just, and I realized in that moment, oh, you know, this whole thing. Why did bitch become such a, a an insult that people level at people? Mm-hmm. And I do think it's because, you know, for better and for worse, you know that female dogs who are neutered have some ups and downs with their hormones and I was thinking how you know I I mean and again I don't want to dissuade anyone from having a female dog I love my Mm -hmm. Gilda she is amazing but she certainly I can see how there's a little hormonal up and down there. Well, everybody and, has hormones. Um, I mean, we talk yeah. about like women with their hormones oh, as though yes. men don't have hormones. Testosterone is a fucking hormone. And then we have testosterone poisoning examples yes. all over the universe. So yes, there are ways in which, and that's the thing, like we can't have the conversation about the ways in which those hormones may be real because those hormones and that accusation has been used to minimize and against and us. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, so it becomes a difficult conversation to have. And again, my dogs may not be typical, but my male dog in his adolescent hormones was just about food and frottage. <laughs> and uh, whereas Gilda gets very irritable mm-hmm. uh, at him. And so I, I do. <laughs> I, and again, you know, everyone's a bit different, but it just strikes me that when we when we take out the polarizing arguments we are allowing nuance back in. Yes. And we can know where something perhaps originated as a slur of bitch without, you know, without going all the way into it. Um, yeah. So anyway, I, I again, I'm sorry. And I, I, I am a work in progress. I am at a Quitney. If anybody, you know, wants to continue. <laughs> if anybody wants this to discussion, argue with me. Right? <laughs> 
please do. And I am, again, I am sure that there are um, uh, unspayed female dogs who are perfectly lovely. And I am not saying that. Right. But that's the thing. Like, females you, are particularly You bitchy. feel like you're expected to speak for every instance. And that's why we can't have conversation with nuance. But I mean, the thing is that like uh, the, the wide reactions that have come into this space come from harm that has been continually done without accountability for so many years. And we are not certain how to achieve accountability. We are really stuck in this space of not understanding what accountability looks like because we haven't had it, you know, modeled for us in our public spheres. And now that more people have access to be able to speak, people who have been deeply harmed by a lot of the bullshit that has gone on now, you know, are looking for um, for something that says these are the safe people. These are the not safe people. These are the good people. These are the not good people. Our brains like to simplify things because humanity is so freaking complex. It's very difficult to handle. So like I do have empathy for the um for the inclination that just wants things to be simplified so that I can, you know, I, as somebody from any particular, you know, um, um, group or identity can go into the world safely, right? I think that's where the source of a lot of this stuff comes from, for which I have great empathy. Um, but I do think that we are at a point where we are growing through that and learning how to make a space for nuance while holding people accountable, while being interested in prevention of further harm as opposed to punishment and pillorying and torches and pitchforks, we are learning as a, as a society how to navigate that space. And I am a person who tries to have deep hope that we will get through this and we will find a place where we can actually make space for the nuance. But until people who are doing harm are held accountable, this kind of thing is going to continue to happen until that harm stops, until the harm itself stops being something that we accept um, and promote yeah. you know so I mean there's a lot of reasons why we have this but I think that in our characters and, and especially talking about Thessaly specifically we need to allow for characters to be written who are doing harm. Maybe they don't know it, maybe they don't care, whatever. But those are discussions that we need to be able to have. And so when everybody in a story has to be absolutely perfect, the story completely falls down because it ceases to become real about real human experience. But also, it's about what the text says is okay and what it doesn't. And that's what we need to be looking at critically, not whether somebody expresses these things in the first place because people do it. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I also realized that I forgot to mention something yeah. um, that I should just touch on, which is the way that we see Foxglove's breasts. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I love that we see Foxglove's breasts. She is not sexualized. I think this is the first time we're really seeing female breasts. Um, well, we saw Rose and yeah, I think, in the series earlier. I, we did had we some. see she was kind of... Yeah. We, we had some breasts? We had some, we had some boob action in Rose. I remember that. Yeah. I don't remember it being as, as clear, but yeah. maybe I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. And I... I think this was before Vertigo was actually Vertigo. I think we did get the Mature Reader's mm -hmm. label on it, or that would not have been possible. Right. But I do know, I mean, we certainly got uh, a lot of uh, blowback for, for nipples. <laughs> I remember Curtis King, you know, the covers mm -hmm. editor constantly saying, you Vertigo people are always going for nipples. <laughs> um, 
And of course, we have such a double standard about male of and female nipples. I mean, imagine if we had six of them. <laughs> Well, you know, I find that interesting because the um, I do love that we are able to see the breasts and we're not sexualizing that. That is huge. I think that that is one of the things. Actually, they're kind of small, but very pretty. They're, they're lovely breasts, right? <laughs> but they're not being used as sexual. We're just allowing, you know, a, yeah. a female body to have the attributes of a female body without it being blanketed yes. in male gaze bullshit, right? And I think that that yeah. is also really nice. And when you think back to all of this stuff that we're talking about happening, you know, in early 90s, right? Like that was a time where we weren't. So I really appreciate the ways in which uh, this story and the ways in which it's 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 representative of so many things that we're like as a culture just learning now, but which the text is saying, yeah, their breasts, get over it. Like, that's not what we're talking about, but they do exist. And as much as when we see breasts, they tend to be male gazy. It is it is like the feminine shame that keeps everything covered up all the time. So the idea that we have Foxglove here having an experience in which we don't have her covered up to the neck and that makes her good and then see the breasts and that makes her bad and we're not polarizing the morality yeah. of that experience. It is just the reality of, you know, of how that is. Um, I, you know, I like that. I think the casual breasts without it being a male gaze banquet is awesome. I all for it. I think it's fabulous. Um, one of the questions that I had to ask you um, is that earlier I was talking about how I feel in this series that like I'm being pulled along on a story that you know we know where we're going, um, that the the plan is in place, and that it feels very confident, and it's not like really running off into too many you know tangents or whatever. Um, I feel like the confidence of the story building, and I'm curious. Um, did Neil plot this stuff out like ahead of time before everything and know what was going to happen? Or was he just going, laying track down as the train was coming, figuring it out as he went? Um, do you remember that? You know, I don't think I ever asked him that because when someone is writing in real time, yeah. it seems like such a dangerous question <laughs> to be. ask. It's like someone's on a tightrope uh -huh. and you don't want to ask, you're like, What's the are you operating of? with or without a net, you know? <laughs> Have you practiced yeah. this? Um, so I never asked that question. I just thought, you know, it felt like too dangerous a question <laughs> to ask at the time. Yeah. Neil has said that of all the storylines, this perhaps came out the most the way he had intended. Mm -hmm. He really felt it was successful. And I think all writers know that feeling. Yeah. Of you had a thing in your mm -hmm. head and it turned out that mm -hmm. way. My guess about Neil, and I will double check, or I'm sure <laughs> he he'll, may text, he'll let yeah. me know or let us know, um, is that he is what I call a plotzer. Uh -huh. um, not quite a pantser, not quite a plotter, but someone who has the shape of the thing in his head and is willing to do discovery as well as it comes along. He's, you know, I know Suzanne Brockman and other writers work from very detailed yes. outlines. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, to my knowledge, that is not a way Neil has ever operated. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, he had a lot of internalized structures from being such a voracious reader yes. for, for so mm -hmm. long. And then that stuff will come to you naturally, you know. And uh, when I first started writing, I wrote my first book without like really knowing anything. I just did it purely on instinct. And then that was what set me off to to 
like 20 years of studying and trying to understand story. That's what made how story works a thing. Because I just needed to know how it was all working. And I couldn't trust my like my inner sense of story, which some writers are really super able to do. Um, but yeah, I feel the confidence and the but connection to the story in the writing. Mm hmm. Yes. And I mean, with exceptions, but I think often writers, dancers, actors, mm -hmm. anyone for whom process comes very intuitively has a, a greater challenge to teach. Yes. It. Because, you know, you you um, it's like being a native speaker of a language, which everyone extols. Mm -hmm. But really, does the native speaker know all the areas in which a, a, a foreign mm -hmm. you know, language student is going to struggle? I guess you learn it. Yeah, I was very the, afraid. In English, mm -hmm. the, yeah, I mean, the present progressive just always screws <laughs> people does. up. But I was right? very afraid when I first started learning about stories to do it because I was afraid that it would break whatever my magic was. And it was, a, I, I was writing the Lucy March stories that I wrote for St. Martin's Press in the like 2015 era that around then. Um, and the, and I was like, that was when I was really getting a handle on all of the story stuff. And the last two books of that, I think are two of the best books that I've written um, of that series. So, um, it is one of those things, but it is very scary because there was a period where I, I felt like I was deconstructing everything that had gotten me where I was in my writing and that if I looked at it too hard, it would all disintegrate. Um, and it ends up holding up, but I've definitely been through a process and, you know, I haven't written a book since 2015. So there you go. Um, working on it now, going back into that, that coal mine uh, um, now. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot. So I, I just want to say that I think when it comes to creating story, the the spirit of analyzing how things are done runs counter oh, to what needs to it happen. It does. It does. That's the thing is that you have to forget everything you know about story until you're in revision. And that is a really difficult thing to do. Or at least not let it change the 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 way you, it's really hard to forget what you know but not let it overly influence where you're going in the early stages you know oh and here's the thing neil used mm -hmm. to do and i think it's it's such a good thing writers should do it more often of uh, he would read me his favorite part of the script he just i written. love that say, do you know what part i really like and i thought oh allowing yourself to say this is what i like about what i just wrote let me let me celebrate it I think, you know, that is, I, I really don't know that that was ever modeled for me by anyone else. And I love doing it now saying, I just wrote something and it made and me happy. And it's my favorite part. Yeah, that's a huge thing. Anybody who follows How Story Works or follows me on TikTok knows that I talk about what's your favorite part all the time as being absolutely essential to a writer's process. Knowing what the magic is and protecting that at all costs, even if it means you have to bend the craft around it, is absolutely essential. So anybody who wants to learn more about that can go to the How Story Works podcast or buy How Story Works, my book on Amazon. On. Um, but also there are some things coming up I think that we want to promote for you, Lisa. What are you up to? Well, I am going to be uh, in conversation with Neil uh, for an evening with Neil Gaiman at the Woodstock Book Fest ah. on April 1st. And uh, there are tickets available for that and other wonderful events. I'm just really excited, thrilled, Uh a little nervous <laughs> to be doing this. I when I told when I told some, you know, close friends and family about this on April first, they said, 
wait, is is this an April Fool's? So it's, this is not an April Fool's. It's just on April Fool's. Yeah, and that is right where I grew up. Woodstock is not very far from where I grew up. I love that area, and I wanted to come out and see you, but as it turns out, I'm going to be moving again soon so i can't do it i wish i could i would love to come see you talk you hate me i love you so much that i would actually consider going (laughs) even in the middle of a move that's how much i love you but talking about our favorite things uh let's go to our favorite art the favorite page what was your favorite page from this oh wilkinson the grizzled old resistance (laughs) fighter greeting barbie i just i love wilkinson i i you know part of me Loved Martin Tenbones, yeah. although we didn't get to see him that mm-hmm. long. But I just, oh, Wilkinson, you grizzled old rat. I, I feel so much Wilkinson's for you. my dude. Like, I love Wilkinson and this whole thing. <laughs> um, I love the page where Barbie finally returns to the land. Um, we have that middle panel where the speech bubbles are sort of curling around her and moving her into the adventure, um, which I absolutely love. And once again, like I have to say, I know I say this a lot, but the ability of the artist to bring that kineticism, um, you know, into this. And let's let's nod to Sean McManus. We did a whole Dave McKean love fest earlier in the thing. And I was like, I haven't oh, said yes. how much I am absolutely loving the way Sean McManus is pulling all of this stuff together in the artwork. I think it's fabulous. So great. So tight. Um, yeah, no, I just I do love the artwork. I think for a lot of people, you know, this wasn't the broody goth look mm-hmm. that they had gotten before in Season of mm-hmm. Mists. But it's just, if you let it be the thing that it is, it is so delicious and so well executed. Absolutely love it. And I love that there's a different feel visually, you know, that the artists come in and they put their own stamp on things. I think that's part of the joy of it. Oh, my God. And I remember the boards. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I I can't remember the technique that Sean had used to create snow, but it was it was textural on the page with the black uh, of the ink and it was just I'm I'm making motions with my hands everybody (laughs) to show the texture so just you know it's so funny I think the the problem with the podcast is that I talk so much with my hands (laughs) and I feel like half Mm. half of my meaning cannot be construed if you can't see my hands waving all around (laughs) I think people can can give it up you're you're pretty uh pretty good at explaining the the concepts behind what you're thinking it's just the hand motions give a little extra something for me and I do appreciate that Um, all right so what's your favorite (laughs) part of the story Oh, you know, I just Thessaly calmly killing that psychic word. It's the calm, mm. matter of factness. So I was uh, on a kibbutz in Israel in, ooh, I was going to say 1981. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a, a, a young woman called Una, who was also like 16, 17. Mm-hmm. And a rat ran into her <laughs> into her cabin. And I said, oh, my God, Una, what did you do when the rat mm-hmm. ran in? She said, Oh, I killed it. You know, it was this very matter of fact. And she made this little like neck snapping thing. I'm like, this woman just reached with her bare hand and just like, ah. Um, And Thessaly's matter of fact, uh, super efficient killing of that uh, evil bird just just filled me with uh, delight. Hannibal Lecter. It is a little Hannibal Lecter. It's very neat. And it really, uh, you know, got my attention. I'm actually I have a very similar moment. It's a a Thessaly moment that is my favorite part. And it's when she's going up to George with the knife behind her back, like she is not fucking around. Like George is a scary dude in this context, even if you don't know about the birds, like there's something about George that you just like keep your distance, you know, and then she gets the bird, she kills it, then she gets out of bed, 
bed and she puts on her glasses and she's like, I'm going to kill this guy. And just has the knife behind her back as she goes up to visit her neighbor. Like it's, there's something about that that is so intriguing and so interesting. And I absolutely love that little detail. In buddy slippers. Yes. <laughs> in little, you know, you'll see. <laughs> If you enjoyed this discussion and would like to join in, Patreon supporters can chat with us and each other through our Patreon Discord channel. To find out how you can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com chipperish. Other ways to show your support, write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or use new Wonderwool, now in cinnamon, freshman, and new salsa flavors. This episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack, well, you took your time, didn't you? Thanks so much for joining us today. Since both Lonnie and I have tight schedules and must fight the forces of the cuckoo, we will be moving Endless to an every other week schedule. This episode will go up on February 14th, 2023, when some of you have romantic plans and I have a hot date in traffic court. (laughs) You can expect us to be back talking about the next issue of A Game of You on February 28th, 2023. We'll be back next time with Bad Moon Rising, Issue 3 of Sandman Volume 5, A Game of You. Until then, you're a nasty little thing, aren't you?